Hello, barbarians. Some of you can see me. That's because this is on YouTube. My name is Emmett Penny. I am the Nuclear Barbarian, and this is the first episode of my podcast. Now, some of you might be coming over from my previous podcast, Exhaust, which still exists. You can go check that out. To those of you who are here from there, welcome. To those of you that have come from Energy Twitter or other spaces, also welcome. To those of you that I haven't met at all, extra welcome. I'm glad to have you along. So I have a really great interview coming up in the second part of this episode, and it's with my dear friend and colleague, Paris Ortiz Wines, who runs the only and the first global pro-nuclear movement. Incredible stuff. It's very inspiring. She's very thoughtful. But before we get to that, I want to tell you why you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, or you're seeing me on your screen, or it is a video playing in the background while you scroll through your favorite social media app. So who am I and what am I doing here? I can tell you that I did not expect to be here at all. I did not grow up in a STEM adjacent family. Condolences to me, I have two liberal arts degrees. And yet here I am defending science and technology on a podcast. What the hell happened? Well, I'm going to tell you that story. And that story starts in Chicago, where I went to high school at a place called St. Ignatius. And it starts in Miss Haley's Sciences AP Comparative Politics classroom, where we took a day away from our normal studying. This had to be about my junior year, I'm guessing. So I'm like 17. And a movie had just come out. This will immediately date me to my younger listeners who may not have even heard of this. But Al Gore, the presidential candidate my parents voted for in 2000, had just come out with what was basically a glorified PowerPoint presentation, or as we would call it now, a slide deck. And it was called An Inconvenient Truth. And the thing that he wanted to impress upon his audience was global warming. That the inconvenient truth of our lives, which require heaps of energy, gigawatts an hour to keep going, well, that relies on the expenditure of energy. And that comes from fossil fuels largely, right? And that is heating up our planet and it's a big problem. Now, Al Gore has all sorts of solutions to that in the latter half of it, I believe. I mean, I haven't seen this in forever, right? But I remember seeing the iconic image of the polar bear trying to float on a raft of ice as it drifts out to sea because the ice caps are melting. And like everyone else, I thought, my God, maybe the world is ending. Scary feeling for a 17 year old to have. Luckily, I had a buffer around that, which is called being a young man, which is that I could not think beyond the next day, let alone the next week. And I mostly thought about my favorite topic, myself. So I didn't really have to worry that much. Did it disturb me? Yeah, but it was the first time I had ever heard the phrase climate change in my entire life. And suddenly that was starting to become a very big issue. Now, in college, I studied poetry and I went on a long drinking and writing tour of different dorm rooms and causing all sorts of trouble and being a social liability. And it took me a while to dig myself out of that. But by the time I did, towards the end of my time in college, I started asking myself questions like, how did it come to be that our society works the way it works or structured the way it is? And I didn't really have any adequate answers to that. 
And there is a sinking feeling that conventional wisdom wasn't off to snuff. And that's when I started reading the news. I started paying attention to things like our wars in the Middle East, which have since ended after all this time. I started paying attention to the world around me very, very glancingly. And that all changed when I graduated college in 2011. I guess I'm going to tell on myself here and said and say that I followed a girl down to Tallahassee, Florida, the summer after I graduated college, after working some manual labor jobs and saving enough money to do so. And what that taught me about the world, because that was also by the time the fall came around, when Occupy was happening, that the way I had been told things worked weren't the way they worked. And there is no better education than that than working three jobs and still living near the poverty line. And so my radical questions about how things worked started to become deeper and more pressing. I started to understand things like how scary it is that your light bill might be turned off if you can't pay it, right? That was an overriding concern for many years of my life. And so I started to look for other answers. And I started to turn to philosophy. I started to read people like Marx, who seemed to be on my side. I was in the working class. I had to try to get by on wage labor every single day. And I wanted an explanation that didn't seem like anything that I was seeing repeated in front of me. Now, as that started to happen, I started to get radicalized. Naturally, I wanted a world where I could work with dignity, where I might have more power over my time, where I wouldn't have to grind so much of my life away just to stay afloat. And once I got drawn into the left, I got drawn into its inherited wisdom about the environment and the way it works. Now, if we skip ahead a few years, I've moved out to New Mexico. I'm in grad school because I've read some of this philosophy stuff, and I don't know if I understand it, and I just worked in a completely demoralizing job writing Common Core, which is a whole other story that I'm not going to tell right now. And I wanted to figure out what the hell was going on in the world of Western ideas. And I got increasingly radicalized while I was out there. Trump was elected. That was a big moment for the left. Bernie would have won was a thing that a lot of us were saying at the time. And that felt like a definite possibility. It felt like the left was in a running in a way that was more serious than at any time anyone I talked to could remember, young or old. That was exciting. And then this other thing happened, Standing Rock. For those of you that don't remember, there was a huge fight over tribal lands and an oil pipeline that was going to go through, right? There was huge police presence, all sorts of stuff that happened there. Very complicated story. I'm not the person to tell it. What I can tell you is that there were a bunch of spin-off protests, encampments, what have you, that happened after Standing Rock. And I went to one of them. I went with a friend who was a veteran of one of our foreign wars that was deeply affected by what he saw over there and motivated towards social justice. He had traveled up to Standing Rock a lot, and somebody had let him know that closer to our area, right? So this is just outside, uh, the place we were gonna go was just outside Marfa, Texas. I think that's near the Chihuahua Desert, 
right? So pretty close to the border with New Mexico. We would go out there and a pipeline, the Trans-Pecos pipeline was nearing completion. So we weren't going to stop that pipeline from being built. No one while I was there thought that we were going to be able to do that, but we could at least make it an issue, right? Because we had to defend the earth. Water protector was a word that was going around. Fossil fuel industry, bad track record, right? Remember global warming. The whole time I'm getting radicalized, it seems like the end of the world is more and more likely, right? Like at some point while I'm working at a bookstore, which is what I did while I was in grad school, I remember being on my lunch break and having a very like self-involved borderline panic attack on whether I would ever find my true love before the climate catastrophe happened. I'm embarrassed saying that out loud to you right now, but it's true. And I don't think I was alone in that type of concern, right? That seems like it was, well, standard among people that I knew. Even those who weren't radicals, that was the fear. So my friend, let's call him Jay. Jay asked me, he says, do you want to go out to this thing? And Marfa, I was like, I don't know what Marfa is, but I'm there, brother. Spring break's coming up. I have just started a freelance career, which is really exciting. And I'm learning how to write about culture and politics. And I thought, well, this is my shot to do like an embed type of thing. You know, I thought about people like Joan Didion, who I've always admired, who could just show up somewhere, watch what happened and then render it so wonderfully, so thoughtfully to the reader. And so I thought, wow, like this could be, not only do I think this is right and like this cause is righteous and I want to represent it in print or digital print, whatever, that it could be good for me and whatever I want to do later. Right? So I was a little self-interested when we went out there. Now the drive out there, by the way, is really interesting. Like, of course I'm like a toddler. So you put me in a car for over an hour and I fall asleep. Jay and I leave in the morning and I pass out like immediately and wake up to a smell. And that smell is through some sort of like gas refinery town in New Mexico. And it like hurts to breathe. And our windows are up, you know, it's like nasty. And I was like, God, I can't imagine living here. Seems more evidence that what we're doing is right. You know, that it is the correct thing to do. Even if it's doomed, it is worth standing up to whatever this is because it seems to be destroying this community. Then I fall asleep again, wake up outside of Roswell. I am greeted by Little Lamb's Daycare, which shares a strip mall parking lot with guns and ammo, AR-15. I, I will never forget that site. It is what I think of when I think of Roswell, not all the alien stuff. And we're driving and we're seeing more fossil fuel infrastructure as we go. The closer you get to Texas, the closer you go. My dad lives in Alpine. When I go see him, you land in Midland and you're just driving past nothing but fossil fuel stuff for a really long time, right? It is there. And by the way, Midland, Alpine, relatively close to where we're going to be. So we get out there, right? And we get out, this thing was put on by the Society of Native Nations. 
and we introduce ourselves. And we're out on a plot of land in the middle of nowhere, right? It's just dirt roads to get there. The first thing we do is to sort of like make sure that we're legit. You know, we're like dehydrated, just drove for hours. Is there like, okay, you're here. Like, here are the rules for the camp. And we were like, okay. And they're like, and now you're going to do a sweat lodge with us. And I was like, oh God, okay. Uh, I was, my first fear wasn't the heat. It was that I was going to have to try to sit cross-legged, which I've never been able to do my entire life. And that fear ended up being correct because it turns out that had a really close relationship to my ability to withstand the heat because it added another layer of discomfort. So we do the sweat. These people trust us. They welcome us in. I feel great. It's a new place. It's scary. I've never done anything like this before, but I feel legit. Not only am I here as somebody who sees themselves as somebody on the left, but I am here as someone who wants to try to be a writer. What could be better than that, right? So we eat, we go to bed. The moon is so bright, I don't sleep all night. It's so bright. The land is like hauntingly beautiful, right? All the Cormac McCarthy novels I've read like really become clear to me, right? There's a description in Blood Meridian. He says, there's a sky so sprint with stars, no two alike. So it's like somebody spilled a bowl of sugar over the top of the earth. I'm amazed. We wake up and it's just normal camp stuff, right? I try to make myself useful. No one trusts me because I'm press. I don't blame them. You know, I just do what other people don't want to do, which is usually like the dishes. And I don't mind doing dishes. So I do a ton of dishes while I'm there. And I was like, this is how I'll win people over, you know. And I'm there. This Italian academic is there to do ethnographic studies or something like that of how people conceive of energy usage or whatever. He and I strike up a friendship. I'm like, this is amazing. There are all these brave people that have done all of this work everywhere, and I am a part of it, right? I don't feel so lonely. It feels like we could actually do something. Then one night, I go to bed, and right before dawn, someone comes to wake me up, and they hand me a hoodie that has duct taped on it and big red tape and they say put this on we have to go video something and I say okay and they told us the night before that something was going to happen and that there might be press there might be cops I don't know what it is nobody's told me anything I'm like oh okay they're marking me as one of their press people they don't want cops to fuck with me now I'm getting excited right and scared so we all get into a caravan of cars. And here's the thing. There are a lot of jackrabbits out there. And you can feel them like thunder under your car as you run over them while you drive out. And that is a sound I distinctly remember hearing. Right? You just see like one ear glued to like the asphalt or whatever when you're driving all the time on the highway out there. So we head out there. And someone who I've met at this camp is lockboxed to a bulldozer. 
And I need to be the person who video records this for Society of Nation, Native Nations Facebook group. And it is a wild thing to experience. It takes them hours to get it undone. We're checking in with this person. At some point we get really scared because they drive in a big truck to block off our ability to see this person, right? It's very vulnerable to be locked. If you don't know what lockboxing is, by the way, basically like with chains, a big concrete tube and all sorts of other stuff, like lashed this person to a bulldozer. The idea was if we can't stop this pipeline from being built, we can at least block it for a day. And part of the reason that Society of Native Nations was out there is because there was all sorts of disputes about sacred tribal lands out there. I think that's a legit dispute. I still do. Right? So this feels good. This feels good. There are people doing indigenous chants. I am recording everything. I have a role. We're checking in with people. And the person gets broken free of the lockbox and we chase the cops to Marfa, where we know this person is going to be jailed for at least a 24 hour period. We chase them because you don't know what's going to happen, right? And you want to be there to cause problems. Fortunately, you have to go through border patrol to get there. And the sheriff must have talked to the border patrol people because all of our shit gets searched. They slow us down. They take like everything out of the car pat us down. We're just sitting there. It takes forever. So by the time we get there, the person that was lockboxed was jailed. What's interesting is there's some support from local cops that understand why we're there. They're sympathetic to the cause. They're very, very nice. You know, that's a surprising feature of this too. So where am I going with this? Okay. So this person gets out of jail, right? We pay their bail. We're back at the camp. Okay, this is done. What do we do now? I don't know. We're out there for a few more days. I'm doing tons of dishes. I'm talking to people. I'm doing all sorts of interviews. I want to get this story down. And then there's this very strange moment I happen. You see, the thing is, when you're at one of these camps, the land use is really weird, right? You have to go to the bathroom. You have to figure out where the water runoff is going to go. You have to do this, that, and other. You have to have a good way to dispose of your garbage, whatever. All of this is incredibly labor-intensive if you're just doing it by hand yourself, right? And out of nowhere, this guy who found out about the Facebook group who lives in the area shows up with a trunk load of food, all, all this meat, all this whatever, because that's the other thing. We have to figure out how to store it without it going bad. We have to have ice. We have to have all of this. It is very difficult to live just on the land. So this guy brings all this stuff. I was a smoker at the time and he brought a couple cartons of cigarettes. So that was great. That was like Christmas to me because I was a chain smoking like a fiend while I was out there. Now, okay. After we're done unloading and that guy drives away, there's this dude I'm at the camp with and he turns to me and he says, if only other people knew that we could just live out here like this, the whole world would be different. And I remember when I had first started reading Marx's Capital, I did what a lot of people do. For those of you that aren't on the left, when you decide to do that, usually there's something you do. And it's you buy the insanely huge book of volume one. You, If you get through volume one, you're lucky. Most people don't read more than that, let alone the first half. I don't blame them. It's a hard book. I'm not dunking on anybody. 
but this scholar, David Harvey, has free lectures to guide you through it on YouTube. And I remember him saying that one of the first things that he always asked his students was where did their breakfast come from? Right? And they would say the grocery store. He goes, okay, but what do you have for breakfast? They say eggs. He's like, where did the eggs come from? The grocery store. He's like, no, but how did they get to the grocery store? Well, it came on a truck. Yeah, from where? And then you walk through the whole supply chain to understand how commodities arrive. And I immediately start doing this for everything that just got delivered to us and all of the infrastructure that was involved in delivering it. And I remember thinking, live out here like what? This is as dependent on industrial society as anything else. So what are we doing? Like I said, the indigenous dispute over land is legit to me. So I get that part of it. But what is the vision for society here? What do we actually think is possible? I start thinking about how many people there are in Marfa, a small town, by the way. What if they were just living on the land? Look, we're in the desert. Like, what am I going to do? Eat all those jackrabbits off the side of the road with the one ear sticking up? Are we going to live off that? How do the seasons work out here? I don't know. I grew up in the suburbs. That doesn't seem like a scalable solution. But then this other thing happens the next day, right before we leave. And this guy who was there from the Earth Liberation Front, which if you guys don't know, uh, is a huge monkey wrenching crew, extreme environmentalist people, pulls Jay and I aside and he says, you guys earned my trust. You're organized, you're workers, you show up, you don't complain, you get things done. I would love to see you at more of these. And I'm like, holy shit, this like left wing, basically like eco terrorist thinks I'm a cool dude. And I'm there with all of these like indigenous people who are rightly concerned about what's happening to the land. Some of them have come directly from Stand Rock and, Standing Rock and have horrific stories about what's been going on over there. How could you not feel like you're a good guy? So I immediately suppress all of these doubts, right? That Italian academic sits me down and wants to have a whole conversation with me about Western conceptions of energy consumption or whatever. I'm sure I said a lot. I had a lot of opinions. And I remember the whole time I am talking to him, I'm thinking these feel like rehearsed talking points. I don't think I've thought of this myself, but I don't know how to think about it. I just have these nagging doubts that I ignore, right? That I completely, totally ignore because I'm scared. Because I think the world is ending. I don't know what to do. I want to do right by these very kind, trusting indigenous people who have invited me into their lives for however brief a period, into their cause, and I am on the left, aren't I? Where do I have to go if I don't have this? So what I do is I just don't work very hard to get the article published and I let the notes just kind of exist in my Google Doc files and nothing comes of it, but I keep writing. And eventually I write a piece called uh, <laughs> Lecture Porn, The Vulgar Art of Liberal Narcissism that does pretty well and I get a DM from a guy named Michael Schellenberger 
and he says, hey, I really like this piece. I want to talk to you. Now, at the time, I'm very broke, and my phone has just shattered, and I don't have the money for a new one, and he wants to talk now. He's like, what's your phone number? So I give him the phone number to the bookstore I'm working at, and he says, I'll call you in five minutes. And I was like, oh, God. So I immediately get the shipping guy to say, can you cover the front? This dude's about to call me about an article. I don't know. This could be a big deal. I don't know what it is. And he goes, yeah, sure. So I spend the next like 90 minutes pretending to fulfill an order with Penguin Random House while my boss sometimes walks in front of me while I'm talking to this guy, Michael Schellenberger, who is a big nuclear energy advocate. And he asked me, he says, what do you know about nuclear energy? This is after we're done talking about my piece or whatever. And I say that it's bad. <laughs> and I say Chernobyl seems bad. Fukushima seems bad. I don't know much about it other than it's dangerous. And he's like, okay. He's like, I think you're a talented writer. I think you're a smart guy. Let me walk you through some of this stuff. And he makes some points and I'm a doubting Thomas. I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, this whole thing is like weird to me. I don't know what's going on. He wants me to come out to Berkeley at some point. I'm like, for what? I guess maybe he wants to hire me. I don't even know. It's kind of unclear, but he seems nice and he seems to care about this issue. So I'll hear him out. And he recommends that I get this book by this guy named Lee Phillips, who is now my friend called Austerity, Ecology and the Collapse Born Addicts. And I read this book from Lee Phillips who's a lefty, speaking my language at the time, walking through why development is good, how we can decouple industrial progress from environmental harm, how nuclear energy has been totally demonized. It starts to explain things to me that spoke to my nagging fears while I was out near Marfa. I'm like, oh, there might be a way out of this. Because this whole degrowth idea just seems like austerity to me, right? And I thought that was the thing we were fighting, is that we wanted more for everyone, not less, right? That's how it should work, yeah? I remember what it's like to struggle to keep the lights on. Why would I want that to be even harder? And yeah, maybe we wouldn't have these disputes like the Transpecos thing if we could use stuff like nuclear energy. Amazing. Now, I was a very committed leftist when I was in there, and I was selected as a delegate for the Santa Fe chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America to go to the 2017 National Convention. So we started GoFundMe. I get some money to go out there because, like I said, I didn't have a lot. And I immediately go to the eco-socialist working group. And I'm like, well, there have to be other people who've read books like Lee's, right? I get that there's sort of a fight here. I don't totally understand it, but I'm sure that there must be people who are pro-industry, anti-austerity, and believe that we can do this decouple thing, right? Not while I was there. <laughs> I quickly found out that I was the only person in the room that did not think that nuclear power was going to basically kill all of us and that it didn't need to be shut down entirely right now. That was surprising. I fly out to Berkeley. I meet with people at Environmental Progress, Michael Schellenberger's thing. He and I go out to dinner. I am basically nuke-pilled at this point. 
Michael and I don't end up working together for all sorts of reasons, and that's fine. I go back to my bookstore life. I have all sorts of questions about nuclear energy. Do I start to have increasing doubts about the left that are interfering with my ability to participate in it because of some of the questions that have been implanted in my brain? Yes. Do I know who to talk to about this? Not at all. A few years pass. I get a call from Michael. Let me rephrase that. I have a job fall apart. I call Michael and I say, would you like to hire me? And he says, yeah, I would actually. <laughs> I'm working on a book. And I was like, oh, great. Please give me money because the book sounds exciting and I want to be a part of it. Book was his best-selling book, Apocalypse Never, which I helped work on as someone who was at EP. And then I learned all sorts of things about nuclear energy, about the environmental movement, about the left that spoke directly to all of my doubts. And I start to realize that people who I like, like Bernie, have a really bad track record for this. And that there is like this zombie environmentalist ideology that is based on never impacting the earth. The only way to never impact the earth is to have no humans on it, by the way. So that's never going to be how that story goes. And I start to feel more and more politically homeless as I work on this book, because I don't necessarily agree with some of the stuff that's going on on the right. I don't want to get into that here, but I think plenty of people feel like me where they don't know where they fit in anymore. Right? So I work on this book. It's a revelatory experience. It's amazing. And then COVID happens a month after I get married, uh, a few months before that book comes out for whatever, all sorts of reasons, I no longer worked at environmental progress, largely because of the problems that COVID created. And I'm wondering what the hell is going on? There seems no state capacity to like do anything almost, not make masks, not do any of this stuff. What happened? People keep talking about a new deal. People keep talking about a green new deal. I'm like, can we even do any of this stuff anymore? So while I don't have a job, I spend a ton of time researching. I launch a podcast dedicated to why nothing feels possible called Exhaust. And I start asking myself really deep, complex cultural and historical questions. And what I realize is that being an insanely wealthy country gives you a huge margin for error, the results of which you might not feel until there is an external event that changes everything. And my friends, that happened in... 2020, and that is happening now, all over the world, in the energy crisis that is at our feet. So after working on that podcast for a year, after working with Michael again on his forthcoming book, I think it'll be out by the time this comes out, San Francisco, and consulting on that. I got the urge to launch my own thing because in doing all of this research, I started to realize that there were more people who felt like me, turned off by the environmental apocalypticism, who care about climate change, I do, but also care about nuclear energy. And then it starts to dawn on me that I keep trying to appeal to environmentalists. I keep trying to play into their fears. I was like, look, there are all sorts of people like me who are working and just want their light bill to go down and want the air to be clean. Nuclear is for them too. All of this is for them. In fact, this conversation we have in energy world is way too cloistered. And I want to appeal to people who might have never considered this stuff before, that I wanted to bring more people into this world, 
rather than have a fine-tuned conversation with the people already in it because so many of them as my nuclear advocate friends who are listening to this now know who are against this entire project they have the non-impact idea but I realized that I couldn't do that by myself, that I would have to talk to some of the smartest people I know, that I would have to find people I don't know yet and have a conversation with them, and that I couldn't have it be a totally strict ideological conversation. Because as I've started to learn about this stuff, the more I've had friends from all different parts of the spectrum, with all different types of backgrounds from all over the world, come into my life and change the way that I think about energy in society. And that's what we need. If you're listening to this right now, if you're watching this right now, that is because of energy. That is because of electricity. It is the thing that undergirds your entire life. It puts the infra in infrastructure. And that's what I want to do here. So this is the first step towards that. I can't tell you that I have all the answers. To be honest, I can't even tell you exactly what this is going to become because I'm just at the beginning. What I can tell you is that I want you here for it and I want even more people here for it. So with that, I'm gonna end my story here and say that a radiant tomorrow is possible. Now we're gonna to pivot to a great conversation with my dear friend, Paris. Hello everybody, I've got an exciting guest. I have Paris Ortiz Wines, the global organizer of Stand Up for Nuclear. How's it going, Paris? It's going well. Thanks for having me on, Emmett. I'm very excited about this project. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's great to have you on. I mean, it's just really exciting because we're recording this right at towards the end of the stand up season. So I know we're going to have a lot to talk about. But right. before we get into like the fact that you basically organize a global pro nuclear movement, which is cool enough in itself, I wanted the audience to get a chance to know you. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Cool. Yeah. So I live in California. I'm from a beautiful town called Santa Barbara. And I growing up was, you know, every kid I was, I wanted to make a change in the world. I wanted to make a difference, you know, the standard, you know, rhetoric. And when I came into college, I studied at Santa Barbara City College, and I was like, I want to study environmental studies. I just learned about climate change. I just learned about how, quote unquote, humans were destroying this earth and that everything that I knew was horrible and that I was going to have to drastically change my life. So I transferred to UC Santa Cruz, went there and, you know, College is a beautiful time. You're finding yourself, you know, you're, you maybe have your first love and you're like, what is my future going to look like? And for me, I thought I was going to go work at a classic environmental nonprofit like Sierra Club and RDC. I applied to these places or Earth Justice. And I was very upset with the state of the world. I became vegan. I made my own deodorant. I wore as many rings as possible, went to thrift shops. <laughs> you were doing the whole thing. I was doing the whole thing. And it felt good. And personal choices to a certain degree can help one. But I was the one woman at the party and even at, at my family gathering saying, this is horrible. This is horrible. You should do this. You should do this. Climate change is ruining it. Did you know this? 
And it's not a very like healthy way to live. For me, it wasn't. Are you telling me that that wasn't fun at parties? <laughs> you know, I really, <laughs> thank God. Yeah. Thank God there was alcohol, right? So then it was like, we can move <laughs> on to the next subject. Take a little bit of the edge off. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And luckily I found my way to environmental progress. I found this nonprofit focused on clean energy. And one of the first things you have to do when looking at applying for a job in this this nonprofit is you watch Michael Schellenberger's TED Talk. And it was why I changed my mind about nuclear. And I have no preconceived fears, notions about nuclear energy was never mentioned in any of my classes. It was maybe mentioned once. And of course, the the main point was nuclear waste. What we were, what are we going to do with it? And when I saw this TED talk, I was like, cool, on board. That sounds like a great idea. Where was this when I was studying? Like, why wasn't energy one of the main topics in my upper curriculum classes? Like, what the hell? I just felt, and I, I got the job. I've worked there for, I worked there for two and a half years and I learned so much. That's how I got in the nuclear space was, you know, working at an environmental nonprofit, EP. And I'm just going to say, I mean, I'm just so glad I found my way to nuclear. The energy is the basis of our, of our society and foundation of civilization. And that's why I'm a, a nuclear fanatic now. That's, that's how I came to be. Yeah, totally. Well, just full disclosure, Paris and I overlapped at EP and Environmental Progress for a little bit. I mean, I remember the first time that I encountered anybody from EP. I talked to Michael Schellenberger over there and he had called me because he liked an article I wrote on something completely different. And he had asked me, like, what do you know about nuclear? And I was basically like, that it's bad. <laughs> I, re I remember distinctly telling him that, right? So I had a similar change of heart. And there were a lot of things, like, along the way that were, like, turning points for me and, like, understanding and reapproaching climate and energy. So I was wondering right. if there was a specific, like, fact or way of thinking that really reframed all of this for you? Because it sounded like you were pretty, like, diehard in a different camp. Mm -hmm. Well, the main goal of environmentalists or what the climate movement says is that we must lower emissions. And that is the main thing that we have to do. And there's many sectors, as we know, that, that give emissions. And I was like, well, we need energy. Right. So what are we we have to power our lives? We need a lot of energy. What is clean and what has enough power? And that was nuclear. And I was like, well, and, it, and I, I stuck with that fact because I was like, well, there's so much waste that we are producing. Right. And the recycling is a joke. But if we had a lot of clean energy, we can incinerate it and we can instant and we can electrify transit with trains oh right you need a lot of energy for that so like all these problems that i had been aware of all of them if i trace them back you need a lot of energy you need clean energy and to be honest i was like i don't want to focus on energy i'm just going to work on like saving plastics from the ocean but i was like mm -hmm. no energy is the foundation mm -hmm. i just i think I stuck with that fact and I traced all of the things that I wanted to work on and nuclear just seems to be the one where I can make the most impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people struggle to understand exactly how foundational energy is to everything we do. It's almost like because it's so around us, we yeah. don't notice it. It's like the water we swim in. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Emmett, I only care about energy when I can't charge my phone or turn on my TV or my Wi-Fi is out. That's the only time I ever was like, my utility. So then I would say, PG&E, God damn it. Where's yeah. my energy? Yeah. It's the only time. No, absolutely. So while you were there, I think that's when the origins of the stand-up movement start to happen. And now it's more or less your own thing. So I was wondering if you'd tell us about like how the idea came about and what it was like at the ground floor to build this movement. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have to go back to 2018. And full disclosure, I was at that point between an assistant and an analyst position. So the real workings were behind the scenes. So our, our colleague that we have in common, Maddie Sirwinski and Michael Schellenberger and Mark Nelson, all at EP, basically, it was pretty dark. Nuclear was just under attack. Nuclear needed action, specifically in the EU and America. There just seemed to be shutdown planned after shutdown. So Environmental Progress organized a meeting with multiple organizations, I want to say a dozen organizations, solely focused on nuclear. They met at Amsterdam and basically planned the Nuclear Pride Fest. They advocated and, I want to say, what's the right word? They joined together to found the Nuclear Pride Coalition. And so a month later, we all flew to Germany, Munich, Germany, in the heart of anti-nuclearism to put on a nuclear pride festival where Melty the polar bear came to life and the pro-nuclear songs came to life and we had face painting, we had multiple booths and allies from across the EU came. It was one of the largest events that we've had. And it was such a success and everybody starts emailing us saying, how can we get involved? Like, I want to do a nuclear pride fest in my country. I can't fly to Germany. Not everybody can come join us. And to be most effective, we needed to have this movement be in every country. So that is why it has evolved now into Stand Up For Nuclear. So Stand Up For Nuclear is the thing now. Right, yeah, because not only can not everybody afford to get out there to to Munich, but also like people wanna defend nuclear in their own country. Yeah. Right. Like they want to stand up for their specific plants, like for their clean air, for their robust energy. Right. And even, you know, for it's it's different in every country. And I want to say the the other countries that are struggling, I want to say economically, financially, maybe politically as well. For them, nuclear represents something different. So the message is different in every country. And for them, it's Let's develop. Let's have a sense of pride for our nation. Let's be able to provide for our citizens. And it's a nuclear energy demands the very best from people. And it gives you a standing in the world. I think it's something to be recognized. Yeah, because not only do you have to have the ability to make it, store it, and all of that, you have to have sort of the virtuous cycle of regulatory regimes, but also Mm -hmm. like the education that goes into training people that can work at the plant, you know, and the really good jobs that come out of that plant and then make the community around it flourish. That's true everywhere there is a nuclear plant. Mm -hmm. Right. There's various degrees of education in a nuclear plant and you can I just spoke with a previous uh, nuclear operator here at Diablo Canyon and you can do, I could be a nuclear operator. 
from what we were talking about, if I had only had a high school degree, I could go through the training and work at my own nuclear plant in California. You don't have to have an engineering degree. There's other jobs within there that I could work at. That's amazing. I mean, that's such an opportunity. So for these countries that are developing, they're trying to get energy sovereignty, they want a lot of energy so that they can basically catch up with the Mm -hmm. developed world. And they have a right to do that. And they should do that. It'd be good for everybody there. So that seems to be the message there. For the developed world, which a lot of these nations seem to have turned against nuclear, which is surprising. What's the messaging look like there? How is it different? For those that wish to develop. So I work with a number of individuals in Latin America, as well as within the African continent and some nations within the Asian Pacific area. And for them, it's not so much the climate angle. For them, there's other real life problems. For example, in the Philippines, without industry and good paying jobs within their nation, they are forced to send their moms, their aunts, their grandmothers abroad, usually women abroad to serve in the healthcare industry Mm -hmm. in the EU. So why not have clean abundant energy, not be reliant on other nations for importing natural gas or whether it's oil. And let's have a program for ourselves, Mm -hmm. a sense of pride for our people to keep our people home. And then to also power our nation without being held hostage. Yeah, I I think that's very true. I mean, we see what's happening as we speak with the energy crunch, perhaps teetering on an energy crisis in the EU and in China. And a lot of the problems there have to do with imports. Right. You know, and competition over who gets coal or who gets natural gas or whatever. And it's driving the price up and it's very painful for countries that don't have, you know, a ton of cash flow to spend on that. No. And then when it comes down to the wire, humans need energy. And Mm. I remember discussing this exact same topic in Belgium. And one individual said, I will burn the last tree for my child to keep warm. We forget that, you know, energy is not a luxury, luxurious thing. This is something we need to survive. And those developed nations moving away from nuclear you have to replace that with something. And if you don't have the storage, quote unquote, for renewables, you need something to back it up. And that is either coal or natural gas. If you don't have any natural gas, you start opening back up your coal. Yeah, the UK is doing that right now, I believe. Exactly. They're opening up a new coal mine in the UK because Mm -hmm. they don't have enough energy. Right. And where we live in California, I believe Gavin Newsom just basically was like, these five natural gas plants I don't care about their emissions. They can run as hard and as long as they want to keep our grid stable. Absolutely. Because now they're they're granted emergency status, correct? Mm-hmm. To, to operate because we need the power. So when it seems we're in emergency, we will allow anything to go. We will burn the last tree. Absolutely. Yeah. But the sad thing is we don't have to, right? Like we could not close Thank Diablo you so much Canyon. for bringing that up. Yes, we don't <laughs> have to actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the miracle of fission. So- yeah, I love, I got so excited, I almost knocked my camera off. Um, <laughs> I love the messaging for countries that want to develop and want this. I think people forget that like having a lot of people leave your country is really hard on it for all sorts of reasons. 
you know, I think it's good to be welcoming towards immigrants that come into your own country because I think that's just the right thing to do. But it's very easy to ignore how painful it is to have to leave your home behind and the problems that creates in countries that have massive outflow of people. Right. You get brain drain problems, right? Where like the people who could run things can't because there's no money for them to run things there or whatever. So nuclear right. is a big, big bright spot. Like, what's it like in, let's say, you know, a country that doesn't have those concerns, like Germany, that seems to be intensely anti-nuclear? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it look like when you're talking to the people interested in doing pro-nuclear events there? Right. I will say that in Germany, the Germans, I'm still, I'm still learning about their culture and how, specifically how Germany functions and it, with its citizens, but we have a great strong group and presence in Germany. And when we speak with our fellow allies, they say nuclear workers are afraid to come out and say that they work at a plant because mm -hmm. and they fear of backlash. They say it's very hard to get in touch with local community members there. And that Germany holds a very strong position within the EU. Within, within those countries, Germany is one of the strongest allies, I will say. Yeah. And so after Fukushima, they decided that nuclear wasn't for them and that they were going to embark on their new energy transition that was not focused on emissions. I will say it, it was to merely transition from nuclear to renewables, mm -hmm. to phase out nuclear, to go to renewables. And what we're seeing there is that people have said Germany has tried we have tried to do the energy transition. So what if we emit some emissions? We're only 2% of global emissions. Like we did our part. Now it's, it's time for others to do theirs. But yet they just broke ground on a new natural gas plant yesterday to mm -hmm. replace the lost generation from Gundremingham nuclear power station. One of four. So in, in Germany, it just seems that everything's allowed to go because phasing out nuclear was the number one priority. Mm. And they're okay. They have enough fossil fuels to keep the lights on, to keep their people warm and to feed their industry, their strong industry that they have there. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to last forever. Mm -hmm. And the, the attitude within the EU surrounding these nations are they're feeling German pressure saying, we got to shut down our nuclear. It's okay, because when we need energy, we can just import it from Denmark. They'll give us some wind. But when it comes down to it, let's say there's no wind and mm -hmm. there's a... And it's cloudy. <laughs> it's cloudy. And whether it's winter or summer, you want some AC or you want some heat, borders shut. They're mm -hmm. not going to send you energy. So it's really scary to see what countries are doing right now surrounding Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like problems that we've been experiencing in the U.S. are now happening in Europe and elsewhere, right? So I think a friend and ally of ours, Meredith Angwin, describes it as the fatal trifecta, yeah. which is over-reliance on unreliable renewables, just-in-time natural gas, and imports. Yeah, which is a difficult space to be in, you know, and it's not, I wouldn't want that for anyone, you know? So, I mean, as you were saying, like you're learning about what it's like in Germany, culturally, how they are. I mean, it seems like standup provides you with a ton of different windows into different cultures and mm -hmm. political systems and stuff like that. What's, 
that's that's probably been exciting right like to see all that yeah absolutely i i get to travel you know abroad i can go to any country and be like oh i have some allies and friends there that we can help out and you know covid's been really tough we're now like approaching the second year of this pandemic but Working with allies from all these different nations, I we hop on Zoom calls and we we don't just talk about nuclear. It's like, how are you personally? How are things within your nation? What are things going on? It's, you know, it's my own news channel and it's from people living on the ground going through it. And I think it's very humbling. You know, one approach does not work for every, it, every approach is different within each nation. And I'm there to learn and to help to work with them and help serve them in any way that I can to build political, economic, and social support for nuclear. Yeah, that's amazing. So like, how has this thing changed over the years, right? Like, so yeah. it, it seems like there was one event in Munich and now it's, I mean, how many places is it, is it at now? I know, it's so this year we're across 25 different countries, 74 events. They're a mix of virtual and in-person ones. You know, there's still wow. COVID's a little bit different sure, everywhere, yeah. right? But yeah, so one event, 2018, a huge one. It, it sparked the movement. The following year, it was now branded as stand-up, allowing the whole, any country to participate. And we decided to have it, wait, what year are we in, Emmett? Are we in 2021? Yeah, I know. That's how I feel. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, so it's, it happens all the time to me. I was like writing something. I was filling out some forms and I was like 2020. And I was like, I had to like rip it up and start over. <laughs> I was like, am I doing my math right? Are we yeah. in the fourth year? Okay. Got it. So 2019 standup was on one day in October. It was like this one day, everybody will have their event. And then they're like, uh, actually it doesn't kind of work for me. It rains over here and it's actually really hot over here. Cause I forgot the world is so big and there's different <laughs> hemispheres. So, and then we did to 2020 pandemic was like, September is stand up season. Pick any day. Anybody's mm-hmm. welcome. Let's do action. And now we're like, F it the whole year. Right. We started in June and now we're going all the way through mid October. That's so, amazing that you can just roll out over the course of several months. I mean, yeah. that's gotta be a lot of work. Oh my gosh. But, and, and, and I do work, but these allies put in work like the oh, Germans, totally. these Germans, man, they did an event every other weekend at six, at the six nuclear sites. They were rolling out every weekend. They were going out, taking their kids, taking their husbands, you know, I love that. Baby daddies, everybody was going. And I think also with the increased number of events, I think everybody else is like, you know, stand up. And we all know this stand up events are just the first step. Yeah, this one event will not change the course of the nuclear outcome or energy and action must follow suit. So now people get to gather with each other for these events and be like, what's next? How do we keep the momentum going? And this is where we've seen this past year. We've done polling. We have done marches. We have done doing open letters. So there's all these other actions that we're doing now. And it's exciting because I get to work with them year long. You know, one event is just not enough. Yeah. So what does it look like as it starts to turn into different action? Like, are you starting to see certain standups create like political pressure for more nuclear energy or to protect it? Or, I mean, I'm sure it's different in a lot of places based on 
what's happening, right? So I was wondering if you could fill us in on that a little bit. Definitely. So let's start with Norway. We recent, we developed a friendship and relationship with the group of individuals in Norway last year. They were brought together by one of our founding Nuclear Pride Coalition allies, and they did an event. And then we decided we should get nuclear to Norway. So how are we going to do that? So one of the actions was let's write a report. Let's look at the, what the Irish did, right? 18 for zero did a whole report on what Ireland would look like with nuclear. So the Norwegian boys were like, I want that. Let's do that for Norway. Nice. Let's start getting in touch with every political party. Let's start making allies. Let's hold a seminar. Let's get some renowned speakers in here, get some funding, and let's do a poll. Let's see how our friends feel about nuclear. And it, every week, we still have this uh, standing call with them. Like, what's next? And their Stand Up for Nuclear event this year was held at the largest political conference week in Norway, Arendal's Week. They were there for about four to five days with the booth, talking with everybody, saying, hey, did you know your political party doesn't support nuclear? How about you go ask them? They're right down there. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And it's like that. That's brilliant. And that polling information, we were able to send it to the Germans. And now here in California, right, we've had a stand-up event. There's one this weekend. But we're realizing we need to get universities involved. We need to talk to the students. Let's reach out to our Democratic politicians. Like, there's so much more that we can do. And, you know, rallying is the first first stop to get some people. But then we got to put in the work and build that foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really, really exciting. So what are, what are the events on the horizon, right? Because there are only a few more. Right. So i got to check my list, but so this weekend will be stand up for nuclear and slow. So here in California, we will have an event. Argentina's coming up next. And then we also have one in Minnesota that's coming <laughs> up. And that's the first time they've ever had a stand up. And they're doing it right side, right outside the Viking Stadium. So they're talking with everybody. That's big. Punt. They're going big. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, Mountie will be out there, a couple individuals, and they're just gonna build it. And I believe that's that's the remainder. Our biggest weekend that we've had was last weekend, September 25th, which was we had about 15 events going on simultaneously. Wow, just all over the world. Yeah, and I will say the bulk of them is our Italians. They're a student-led coalition. They have every, they're in contact with every nuclear engineering department of the universities within Italy. That's fantastic. And yes. very, very savvy. Absolutely. And so you see these young students, both men and women out there with their new, new swag for pro-nuclear staff. And they're happening all on the same day, 10 different cities. I'm over here trying to download every picture so I can share the news <laughs> with you guys. And then Brazil went, they did their online event, their second year participating. Mexico went, had their online event. So it's, it's exciting. And every weekend I'm like, oh, who am I going to follow on social media today? I know they're doing an event. Yeah. What does it look like for them? That's really, oh man, that makes me so happy. So Whenever I talk to you about stand up and whenever we talk about nuclear energy, it just feels hopeful, mm -hmm. right? Like even if nuclear is under attack, even if certain things are happening, has working on 
stand-up made you more optimistic, would you say? It depends on the day, I will say. Yeah. But over, I think overall, the future is bright for nuclear and the future is, is, the future is bright with nuclear for us and humanity. But if I focus solely on the U.S.'s situation, it gets me pretty down. Mm-hmm. But then when I, when I look at Brazil, we're looking at Argentina, the Philippines, Kenya, Malaysia, like these folks are just getting started. Like their mm-hmm. nuclear program is going to be built. It's just a matter of how many years it will take. Mm-hmm. And we know these allies and are working with them and are so glad to be on that journey with them. Everybody who wants nuclear should have the opportunity to develop that technology in their own country. Absolutely. And, and it's, and, you know, countries that are even moving away from it, it's beautiful to see allies standing up for it saying, no, we need this. We need to fight for it. And international collaboration is needed specifically in the EU area, even neighboring countries, you know? And that's, I feel enlightened by that. Totally. Keeps me going. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it on that note. Paris, thank you so much for joining me. This was great. Thanks, Emmett. I hope to be back soon. Oh, you will be. All right, guys. Thank you for joining us. If you liked what you heard today, feel free to subscribe leave some stars or review that's really helpful and share it with people you know stay strong and stay radiant